Deadline sponsors include HBO, presenting Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, nominated for seven Emmys, including Outstanding Variety Talk Series. We are here with the director of The Night House, which is opening this Friday. It was the first big deal at Sundance 2020 before the pandemic hit, with Searchlight taking the film for $12 million. Listen to our conversation. Tell me about how Night House got off the ground. Did Goyer come to you with the script? Was Rebecca already attached? No, I, uh, Ben Collins and Luke Petrowski, good pals of mine. I've worked with them before. They had this draft laying around for a few years. They had admittedly given it to me a few years previous and I've gotten busy with something and I didn't read it. And in 2017, I just finished the ritual. And I think it was Ben was like, you know, seriously read this script. It's going to be your favorite stuff ever. And I did. And of course I was like, this is everything I would ever want. Um, and um, I was troubled by the script and, um, and it genuinely scared me. And I sat down with Keith Levine um, and uh, who I had known previously and uh, just said, hey, here's this crazy movie that no one will make. And um, he and David Goyer took an interest in it. And um, so we developed it for uh, about a year. And then, um, and then we got it to Rebecca, um, just as kind of an offering to the movie gods, like what if Rebecca Hall wanted to do it? And um, lucky for us, she, she read it and, um, and, and just got it and understood it. And, and not, not far after that, we were off. Now it's about a woman that experiences a really tragic loss mm -hmm. and is continually haunted. So what about it did it, what haunted you with it? Was it the actual kind of afterlife experience and kind of like this, you know, learning things that we didn't know about a loved one? I think it was a lot of those things. I think it was the idea that you can, the terrifying idea that you can never really know the person you're with is a truly mm -hmm. only feeling um, that you might uncover a secret life, of course, always, if you can get, kind of a high resolution picture of that. Um, that's very, very intense. And uh, and then I think, but I think what really got me was um, the, you know, Beth's backstory and where that leads and the idea that um, she had crossed over and had become convinced afterwards that, you know, that there's nothing. And I think we're comforted by supernatural mythos. Like I think it imbues um, our sense of the afterlife with um, uh, the magic and a little bit of story and meaning. And I think to be confront confronted with that more existential plight that that may not in fact be the case is something that I think many of us, I know myself, I, I wrestle with, that's completely on the table as a possibility, but I don't confront it often. And the fact that the script gave me a very vivid experience of facing that um, kind of forced me to reckon with it in some ways. And um, yeah, and I found myself really wanting to find something else in it and, um, and uh, solve that for myself or for the story. And then I, I think instead 
you know, the, the, the script took on a life that was really about wrestling with that um, more than it was about conquering that confrontation, if that makes sense. David, was it always the intention to make this film in the independent space? Or were other, did you take it out to other studios to see if there was interest? Yeah, Phantom Four uh, had a lot of faith in it. I think we believed that, you know, that this could have been a studio film. Um, and so we did seek um, support in that arena initially. Um, but I think what came to be was something of a more independent approach. And it really worked out because I think there, there weren't a lot of, um, um, uh, we really could entertain ourselves and make the, exactly the film that we wanted to make, even though we had to do it on a budget. And uh, I think that set us free in some ways to do something that was uh, a bit less compromising. And, um, and it was great because then we got to premiere it at Sundance and Searchlight got behind it and they understood what the film was and put their weight behind it and, um, and have been very supportive ever since. Tell me about that. When that bid came in, uh, first of all, pre-pandemic Sundance, completely right. different era. Yeah. Um, I remember it was the first big deal of the festival. Searchlight bought it for 12 million. We broke the story, Deadline broke the story. Um, but wh where are you when these, when these meetings go down? Where, are you pacing in your ski condo? Are you involved in the meetings? Kind of hearing what all the different distributors are kind of promising. Um, yeah, yeah, you're doing like, 1 a.m. meetings with teams uh, at the festival, you know, um, uh, high altitude, low oxygen, low sleep. Uh, you're also coming off of a mad rush to post the film. Like I joke that we, you know, parachuted into Sundance with a DCP to get the screening out on time. So it's a bit of a whirlwind. You don't know what you have. You can't see the film anymore. Um, you're kind of riding on the faith that earlier decisions you made will have an impact. And then you're suddenly kind of pushed out there on the stage and you premiere it in front of a large audience. And when they react to it, it's completely electric and it could very easily go the other way. So um, I, I was very grateful. And in, you know, in the days that followed, there were lots of conversations and you nailed it. We were in a ski lodge when we got the call. And, uh, and it's great because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's your team. You know, it's the writers and the producers. It was our composer. It was, uh, you know, a few other teammates that were there and we'd all been through it on the film together. So it was a, it was a welcome victory. And, um, you know, for a moment in time, we were thanking the movie gods for sure. David, sometimes with these talk shows, they want to talk about topics right here, right now, what happened today. But sometimes it's always good to look back and reflect on your week. And that's exactly what John Oliver does on HBO. I'm talking about Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. It's nominated for seven Emmys, including Outstanding Variety Talk Series. All episodes are streaming now on HBO Max. So here's the thing, you know, the film was held by Searchlight for a theatrical release that speaks volumes for any distributor, you know, surviving the pandemic. They believed in this enough to give it a theatrical release and not sideline it to streaming. Can you talk more about that? I mean, I fully expected when the pandemic set in that we would end up on a streaming platform, that that would make the most financial sense for somebody and that that's, that's where it would land. Um, 
so it was a surprise to me that they were completely committed to stick to theatrical and they just never wavered. Um, I think, you know, from the beginning, it was um, uh, a commitment to see this in theaters and to recreate that theatrical experience from Sundance. You know, there are aspects of the film that are, um, can very much generate the energy of a crowd. Um, yeah, it's complex and probably a little art house and, and, and it does some stuff people might not be expecting in a way that's somewhat unconventional and it's a drama and a character piece, but it's also, we hope, a very, very scary movie. And so um, I, uh, I'm very grateful that they, they have stuck to their guns on that. And uh, I'm just cannot wait to see how people respond to it. Can you talk, you know, the sound effects and the visual effects are stars in this. Yeah. And can you talk about putting that together on an indie budget? Is it, first of all, was everything polished to the way that you wanted it heading into Sundance? And did you make further enhancements coming away from the festival? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a mad dash premiering at the festival. So, it, you know, the Sundance film version of the film was not super polished. I mean, I think... Uh, you really have to go with your gut when you're in a rush mix. You're making decisions very, very quickly. Um, but there's a certain spirit to that that's fun. Don't have time to overthink things, you know. And everything you're seeing and hearing is a reflection of where you were in the moment you were making it. Um, but uh, but after the fact, we were able to step back and take a breath, uh, a, a breather. And um, Searchlight was very supportive. Like, uh, we were able to do some remote editing early in the pandemic and touch up some things, you know, a few nips and tucks there, uh, do another pass on the sound design. But um you know, no story changes or anything. Like we didn't lose any scenes. It just, um, we just polished it a bit more. Can you tell us about a, a certain sequence that was just, you had to get that sound design right? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that we talked a lot about was um, were the highs and lows of the sound design. You know, this all goes back to the character Beth and she's reeling after the recent loss of her husband and her emotional state can turn on a dime rather quickly. And we wanted that reflective in the design. And so, uh, you know, there's a moment in the film that is, feels like a very comfortable, quiet moment between friends, um, very safe, precious place. Um, late at night, there's a low gravel to the voices that you can't fake and you get kind of lulled into this dream state. And then um, in a split second, the film catapults you into a wall of noise and tyranny. And uh, uh, we always knew it would have an effect. We weren't sure how far we could push it. Um, and uh, it's supposed to be disarming. And um, it, the intention is not to lead it. It's not a jump scare. Um, it's, 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 you're getting pummeled for a moment and um, uh, again, that's the experience of the character. And we thought, what, what better than to employ the medium to put us there, even if it does seem um, a bit mischievous. I, I love the scene where she's dream. We don't know she's dreaming. We think it's real time. And then she wakes up, up, she wakes up on the couch and the door is like wide open. That, that was brilliant. Yeah, mirror logic was something we talked about a lot. In, in on set. Uh, a lot of framing things up, having to bend our heads around opposite versions of things. It was just a recurring motif in the film. And, um, you know, uh, filmmakers will relate to the difficulty of getting eye lines right in the first place. So um, introducing several mirrors in the situation to make it happen can be a bit harrowing when you're short on sleep and tight on time. 
Were you, how long was the shoot? Uh, uh, 24 days. And then did you storyboard everything or only key sequences? Like oh, when she's getting chased around the dock. Yeah, key sequences. Um, we didn't have enough time to storyboard it. You know, I mean, it came together very quickly. And um, I, I, I'm definitely a filmmaker that likes to um, lean into a space, into an environment. So uh, until we find the house, until we know the geography, until we understand the water and the way it works, um, it's the, the, the imagery is a bit abstract. Um, and so it all comes together in relation to that. So um, this was very fast. Um, I think it was the spirit of the material to be kind of out on a limb. And so um, a lot of what the film is, those were a lot of split second decisions, a lot of in the moment choices. How'd you settle on Utica? New York. Oh, well, we shot uh, Lake Skinny Atlas and it was close. And um, my editor, David Marks, is from Utica. And uh, we were kind of wrestling with, uh, you know, should we anchor it to a specific location? Um, and it just seemed uh, just out of the way enough to make sense for the audience. No one's asked about that. I'm, I'm glad you picked that up. So before I let you go, anything you could tell us about Hellraiser? Are you shooting it now? Is Oliver Smith coming back? All, all I can say about Hellraiser is that it is a dream come true for a horror person like myself. Um, you know, obviously Barker's formative and, uh, you know, those films gave me a lot to chew on um, when I was younger. And then even later, they take on new meanings, I think, over time. And uh, it's a big, vast, fantastic universe. And... Um, I think, think all horror fans are down for, you know, a greater exploration of the box. And, uh, you know, I'm just happy to contribute to that. Are you shooting now? Uh, yeah, we, I can't really give any details about the film yet, about when it will come to be, but uh, very, very soon, I hope we will have a big announcement that reveals all. Great, thank you yeah. so much. Appreciate it, thanks, Anthony. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.